fellow aviators. Welcome to JPL Aviation, where leadership and aviation take off. Today we have with us Greg Rath, who is a combat decorated fighter pilot, flying 75 missions to countries including Kuwait, Iraq, Somalia, and flew in Operation Desert Storm, Southern Watch, and Restore Hope. He was the commander of Marine Corps F-18 Hornet Fighter Squadron aboard the USS Abraham Lincoln, a Marine Aircraft Group, and a Marine Aircraft Wing. Some of the aircraft he flew were the F-4 Phantom II and F-18 Hornet. Greg served as Assistant Chief of Staff of the White House Military Office, in which he kept communications between the Commander-in-Chief and Pentagon intact during extreme uncertainty. However, his career did not end after he retired from the military in 2004 after 30 years of honorable service. He began to pursue a commercial career with JetBlue Airways, only to pursue the business world in Anaheim, selling car parts from around the world and distributing them across the U.S. This business, however, got bought out, and Greg had the opportunity to go back to school to pursue a bachelor's degree in history. But, did I mention, he already had two other degrees, one from ASU in Business Administration Management and a Master's in Military National Resource Strategy from the National Defense University. Greg also wrote a book called Nine Lives of a Fighter Pilot, which details his journey of being a fighter pilot during Operation Desert Storm during Saddam Hussein's reign. With his degrees underneath him, his experience as a leader in wartime as an exceptional fighter pilot, time serving the White House at the highest levels, his knowledge of flying in the airlines, and now pursuing a political career for a congressional seat in California, Greg Rass is not just your average aviator. We have a lot to learn. Welcome, Greg. Hey, thank you very much. How are you doing today? Very good. It's election day here in uh, California. so It's a big uh, day for you. Big day. We've been working on this for a year now, so we'll see tonight where we stand. Awesome. Well, let's get to it. So if you can kind of give us a background on where you're from, where you grew up, what your childhood was like. Well, I come from a large family, eight kids in our family. Uh, I was the fifth out of eight. My father was a decorated uh, World War II bomber pilot. He served with the 9th Air Force in Europe during uh, D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, invasion of France, uh, winner of the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Bronze Stars, numerous air medals. He flew the A-20 Havoc, which is a twin-engine uh, mid-range bomber with two gunners and a navigator. He was from Minneapolis, but after the war, and he met my mother, they moved to Arizona to Phoenix, where I was born in 53. And uh, I was uh, raised in Arizona with the, my brothers and sisters. I went to a Catholic high school, small Catholic high school, which really propelled me into the political world because in grade school, I was kind of an introvert. But in a high school, the small school, we had about 140 in our class. I was able to run for uh, class president my freshman year in high school, and I won. And then followed in as my senior year, I ran for class president, got to be pretty popular as a football star. There you go. <laughs> uh, what position? All, all state. I was a uh, linebacker and a center, believe it or not. I, and uh, I remember when I signed up, when I was a freshman, nobody signed up for center, so I put center and I, I got the job. But uh, I was all state. Then went to Air, uh, Phoenix College, which is a junior college. I played uh, a year of football there. and. And a lot of those players were getting ready for the f university level, and it was a whole level, new level of football. It was just very difficult. And I wanted to be a pilot, military pilot, and I didn't want to hurt, you know, break my leg or something. So I didn't play any more football. But I, then after junior college, I went to Arizona State University, got a degree in business administration. And while going to college, I took some private pilot's license because I wanted to be a military pilot like my father, and we were now in the jet age, obviously. The F-4 Phantom was the premier fighter. The A-4 Skyhawk was out there, and the Marine Corps flying the Harrier, which is the jump jet. So I uh, was researching in the officer program for the military, but I took some private license, uh, lessons at Sky Harbor Airport in, in Phoenix at uh, Sawyer Aviation, and I really had a knack for flying. Got my private pilot's license, and I had a lawn service when I was in high school and college, so I was able to, once I got about 50 bucks, I was able to rent an airplane with an instructor, and I got my private license, and I knew I could fly, and I was concerned uh, I didn't want to join the military and get sick flying, then I had to go do something else, but uh, that wasn't a problem, so I joined the Marine Corps Officer Program while I was at Arizona State, similar to the ROTC program in 1973. And then graduated in 75 with a degree in business. And then I went off to uh, Pensacola, Florida for flight training. And that was really, really exciting. It was difficult, you know, because I had my group of friends in Phoenix. Uh, um, 
and it was hard to leave the community, but I had my goal set on being a, uh, a fighter pilot. And uh, so off I went to Florida. And in primary flight training, I flew the T-34 Bravo, which was a turboprop with an instructor in the back. And had about 24 flights and then ground school. And then they took all those grades. And there's 10 in my class. The top two would go jets. And the bottom eight would go helicopter. So it was very, you know, I had very competitive. And I had to be in the top two to get jets. And I, I was in the top two, so... My best friend, he got jets too, so we went off to uh, Meridian, Mississippi for flight school. Uh, John McCain Field was named after Admiral McCain, uh, John McCain's father. And a beautiful, I don't know if you've ever been to Mississippi, but not. it's just a beautiful state, high pines. And it was perfect for me because it really tucked away and uh, it kept you from going out partying and everything because I really wanted to get my wings and it was a year and about two months of jet school. You started in a T2 uh, Buckeye, which is a twin-engine jet, a straight wing. And then you six months of that. And then you get six months in a T30, T, TA4 Skyhawk, which is a swept wing uh, jet. And you end doing some carrier landings. I got uh, six carrier landings on the USS Lexington, which was uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. And after all that training, which is about a two-year process, you get your wings. And my, my Navy wings, Marine Corps goes through Navy flight school. And my father came from Phoenix and pinned on my wings because he was a pilot. It's pretty exciting. Then I get my first assignment to El Toro Air Base here in Orange County, which is everybody wanted because... Uh, SoCal. SoCal, beautiful Amen. weather. Amen. And uh, I... My buddy and I got a uh, apartment in Newport Beach, you know, on the beach, and I'm flying F-4 Phantoms. Actually, when I got my wings, I, got, I had to go to Yuma, Arizona for six months for F-4 training uh, to get uh, uh, up to speed in the F-4, and then I came to El Toro. So so I went to uh, Pensacola, then Meridian, and then uh, Yuma, and then here. So That's a lot just to um, unpack there. So let's, like, kind of start with, your father obviously seemed to be a huge person for you in your life yeah. when growing up because you had um, him pinning it uh, the wings on you and what what was his influence like to make you into the man that you are today? He he had a lot of influence. My father's my scoutmaster as a Boy Scout, and if you at, at a young age, actually my mother is my den leader as a Cub Scout at age eight, and then at eleven I joined the Boy Scouts. My father's my scoutmaster. And Boy Scouts really set the foundation for a young man. And, and there's the Scout Oath is on my honor to do my best, to do my duty to God and my country, to help other people at all times. So the first three sentences, there's nothing about yourself. It's God, country, and help other people. So I learned at, at a young age, those were the three goals. Is to, and my father taught me that. He was a strict father. He, I wasn't real close to him because of the eight kids. He would work all day. We didn't see him that much, but on weekends and boy scout outings he would be there but he was very demanding and i wanted to please my father and uh i obviously being a military pilot would please him but it was it was he was tough but when i got my wings he meddled out and uh, he was very proud of me for, for my 30-year career in the service at some point did it feel like you guys were able to bond more because you kind of had the same status level in regards to flying or yes in fact um my, my four brothers and I, we all made Eagle Scout, which is pretty good, you know. My uh, dad was an Eagle Scout. Yeah, believe, so, so five boys in our family were Eagles. and uh, But I think we bonded on a flight in a, when I got my private pilot's license when I was a junior in college at ASU. I rented an airplane, and my father never had the money. He was a blue-collar worker after the war, and never we never had much. Uh, we were kind of lower middle class, which was fine. We all worked as kids. But... I rented an airplane and took him flying. And he hadn't flown since the war. And so I put him in the right seat, and I was in the left seat, and I just let him fly around. And I could just see it, that he really enjoyed it. And that's kind of where we start bonding as, as aviators. And because you were working really hard um, to get the money to fly, when you took your father up, it was definitely something more meaningful. And I'm sure that the sacrifice you made, your father saw that, and he was like, hey, you definitely have saw the effort that you're putting into the relationship. Yes, I, yeah, I believe so. And then when I went off to flight school, you know, I, he always kind of, well, will Greg really succeed or is he just one of these hot shots that give it a try? And I, so I really worked hard to succeed, and, and I did. 
and uh, I rose to the rank of colonel, which is a pretty high rank in the Marine Corps. 100%. And uh, so let's start with um, your training, obviously. What was the the your experience in that, and how did you go about becoming successful in the military schema? Flight school is probably the most difficult thing I ever had to go through in my life, even to this day. Uh, just the constant studying. Uh, ground school was two months of, of uh, weather, you know, aerodynamics, uh, jet propulsion, uh, vectors, mathematics. It, it was very, very difficult. And then every mission, every time you're with an instructor, you know, you're being uh, evaluated on, on each of the maneuvers. And it was, you know, you could fail at some maneuvers, have to redo it. It was probably the most difficult time of my life because I'm 21, 22 years old, away from family, away from friends. I'm in Marini, Mississippi. I had a few friends I, from the military that I had met, but it was very lonely and uh, you'd go home and just study. I'll, I just remember on Saturdays I would golf. Just uh, Saturday morning is my time just to relax, and I'd go golf at the base. And then I'd drive around in my car. I had a Chevrolet Malibu, and I had the eight-track tapes. And I remember I'd put it in, and Olivia Newton-John was my big favorite. She was a, a hot blonde from, from Australia singer, and I just loved her. And I put it in. And I would just drive around these country roads in Mississippi and uh, listen to her music. And then I'd come back, and Saturday night we would go out with some of the guys. But then Sunday it was all business. Studied all day Sunday, getting ready for your flights. And uh, I did well. And uh, I got F-4s, which I wanted to fly, and then off to Yuma. And that was difficult. But Yuma, I was close to Phoenix where I grew up. So on weekends I could go home and see my buddies. That's awesome. And it was pretty cool because here I'm flying Phantoms. I'm 23 years old. I'm in a $40 million jet flying supersonic over the over the desert of Arizona. And my friends are still at Burger King, yeah. assistant manager. And one guy's, oh, I'm going to be a uh, you know salesman of some sort. And I'm flying jets. So it was pretty cool. And what was your experience like when the first time you sat in the jet after all that hard work? Can you just describe that? Yeah, you really go through a bunch of flight simulators before you start, you know, and simulators, 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 probably about 40 simulators before you even get in a jet. So by the time you get in a jet, it, it was, you're pretty comfortable. But uh, I just remember going down the runway, going in a power, uh, full power, just as a sense I never felt in an airplane. You know, you sense it in a simulator, but when the real thing, yeah. you hear you get your helmet on, your mask. And uh, it was pretty cool. And especially my first flight in a uh, F-4 Phantom. You go to full after. I'm at Yuma. I take off. I still remember three, four left, I think it was. Like full burner. You know, just thousands of pounds of thrust. And I'm like, if something goes wrong now, I'm screwed, man. <laughs> but I'd pray everything. We'd go down there. you hit about 170 knots. And you pull back. And uh, about 190. That's you're crazy. in the air. <laughs> And then within within uh, a few minutes, you're at twenty thousand feet, you know, supersonic, and it was just a crazy and doing loops and and uh, Emmelmans and all these different maneuvers. So it was. I'm like, how did I get here? You know, I'm I'm twenty three, twenty four years old. And I'm I'm flying one of Uncle Sam's airplanes and, and getting paid. I'm getting paid to do getting it. Getting paid to do it, right? That's the best part. Yeah. And uh, when you're going up and you're flying, um, are you just practicing maneuvers like you said, or are you yeah. kind of just? Is that like they say, hey, you know, you have X amount of maneuvers, you got to go up and practice today. You're going to be on the real thing. Like, is that kind of how it was set up? Or yeah. Well, describe? you start out. You're not just a pilot. You, you learn all the instrument training. You, you know, the weather's bad. You learn all that. But then now you're using your aircraft as a weapon as a weapon system you're teaching you learn how to shoot missiles from your airplane how to drop bombs from your airplane you're learning to, to, to be in a dogfight, to fly at low level high speed high level high speed uh, high level low speed so flying has got to be natural now all that's in you know experience now you're using your airplane to destroy things and kill people and everything else so it's, it's just a whole new world than just being a say a uh, uh, 152 pilot or a commercial uh, Airbus pilot, you know, now, now the fangs come out and you, you turn into a, a, you know, a Top Gun pilot, like the movie 
with yeah. Maverick, it's very, very competitive. Who's the best? Yeah. And we all know who's the best and who's the best of the best. And a lot of people after one tour get out because they, they can't handle the pressure. And what uh, determined in your eyes in the group, per se, collectively, what made someone a really good pilot? Just you get a feel, you know, seat of the pants flying. You, you, you're not, uh, you're not scared of the airplane. You're in charge. You're, you're in control of the airplane. You know where you're at, the speeds you're at, and how to maneuver an airplane to get behind a guy to take a shot. Uh, how, how to roll into a target to get a, a good uh, uh, bombing uh, run on a target. Uh, I mean, you're dropping bombs sometimes at fifteen thousand feet, and you're within like two, three feet of the target. You're not. Hundreds of feet. You two. You want two feet, and that's how accurate the F-18 was compared to the F-4 Phantom. F-4 Phantom was not an accurate bomber, but the F-18 was just incredible because it's all digital and uh, it's all, all computerized. But uh, it was. You would know the good pilots and the poor pilots, and the poor pilots would would exit slowly, and then the good pilots would rise, rise to the up. top, like Maverick. You know, and, and Top Gun 2's coming out this summer. It's really going to be good. Tom Cruise? Yeah, Tom Cruise. Yeah. Now he's a uh, he's a Navy captain. He never made Admiral. Uh, I, I mean, believe it or not, 86 is when Top Gun came out. So we're looking at 34 years ago. Yep. Kelly McGillis, is, she didn't age very well compared to Tom Cruise. <laughs> but I, I think uh, Val Kilmer's even doing a cameo in it. So, But that movie really... Uh, really helped us pilots was that like a inspiration for you guys kind of you watched it as like a group together probably and just like it was uh just the movie that uh, the officers clubs at all our bases were packed with uh, women and trying to meet a pilot uh, and, and yeah. it, it, it was like you know all these kelly mcgillis's want to meet a fighter pilot 100 so really it boosted, was pretty cool really boosted the ego a little bit <laughs> it did and uh it, it put us on the map but uh flying fighters you're uh, you're a unique person to do that because you got to be a little crazy. You got to be not afraid of dying because every time you go up, you're going to die. You got to have a type A personality. You got to be aggressive. You got to be able to just uh, take on the world and, and leave your problems behind. If you got problems, you got to compartmentalize what you're doing in the airplane. And that's one thing we, I got really good at. If there's some problems at home or there's problems with finances or whatever, you, you put that all behind you when you jump in the jet and strap in. I mean, you strap in, helmet, mask, gloves, you know, you're, you're out for bear. And it's probably the most exhilarating feeling is flying a fighter, jet fighter. And it sounds like it was more of an escape for you as well in regards to being able to it get was. away. Because, like, for most professional athletes and people get really good at what they do, they it's called, like, the flow state when they're in their zone doing their thing and time just goes by really fast. They are accurate with everything they're doing in regards to accomplishing the set skill that they came out to do. And so for you, it sounds like when you got in that fighter jet, you had that type of flow experience. Right. And you got to know your own limitations, where, where to take the airplane that you're not comfortable with. You try to push the envelope a little bit but you know your own capabilities you know I, I would never want to push them too far but uh uh my very probably very came close to death death was my first night carrier landing in a phantom uh, we were out to sea off the coast of california out of el toro and the, the marine layer was sitting on on the water the visibility was down to maybe a half a mile drizzle 45 knots of wind across the deck. I was trying to land on the USS Enterprise. It has a square island, which made a terrible burble. As the wind comes across, it hits the island and goes down the flight deck. And, the, and then if this is your flight deck, the air goes down and up. So as you're coming in, you get sucked up and then sucked down. And I remember my night carrier landing. I'm coming in. I felt really comfortable. You know, I break out of the of the goo. You see, you see the little lights. I'm lining up and and I get pushed up from the burble, and so I start pulling power. Then you get sucked down. Oh, there's an LSO on the end of the air, uh, carrier talking to you. You know, hey, low power, add some power. He starts screaming power, power, afterburner. So I'm full burner, and I barely landed. I almost hit the back of the ship. Oh, my gosh. So I uh, got a whole new respect for what an LSO landing signal officer does. And then they taxi me. I taxi into the one wire, and they take me up to the 
catapult at night and shoot me off again for some more. I was like, oh, my God, how did I get myself into this situation? <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> but then in my career, I got really, really, really good at carrier landings, and I, I got several hundred carrier landings, and the F-18 was really pretty easy, not easy, but less difficult to land on a carrier. And so let's just dive into that portion of your uh, your career. So what was your first mission that you flew, and what was the aircraft that it was in? Combat mission? Sure. Um, well, I flew off the Midway, USS Midway, 79, 80, 81, as a carrier pipe, flying the, then the RF-4 Phantom, which is a reconnaissance version of the of F-4. It had cameras in the nose, and we were off into the Arabian Sea flying uh, missions when the Iranian uh uh, the Shah of Iran was overthrown in 1979, so we we're flying close uh, air support, or combat air patrols in the Persian Gulf. And here's the crazy thing: Iran was an ally of the United States up to '79, and we have been selling them the new F-14 Tomcats. We're selling the Shah of Iran because they were buying them; they had all the oil money. And so we we exported these airplanes before we actually fleeted up our own fleet. So. Now the new uh, regime comes in and takes over the Air Force, so they're flying Tomcats and we're flying F-4s, which is two ver different it's versions a, yeah. of fighters, so we're, we're having to train to fight against our own airplanes, which is really unique. So uh, that was uh, 7980, and then we start picking up the F F uh, Navy, start picking up the new Tomcats and the Marine Corps. We bought the new F-18s in 83, 84, and in 89, I switched over to the uh, F-18 Hornet. Uh, and then I saw my real taste of combat in Desert Storm in 1991. And that was flying the F-18s? Yeah, Storm? I was flying the F-18. And so before we get into Desert Storm, how was that transition like from the F-4s to the F-18s? It's like uh, one of these old Cadillacs and, into a Ferrari. Oh. <laughs> uh, everything's digital. And now this is early digital, so you're talking 80, 90 technology. So you had the sc uh, digital screens, and you had a HUD heads-up display. So you have to look down; you could look right through. You had some superior uh, engines, thrust away compared to the Phantom. The thrust away was just incredible, so you could straight up and accelerate. Um, it was just it was just night and day. It's made of composite fiber, which is a lot stronger than steel, but it's a lot less weight. So you could really yank the aircraft around, pull seven, eight, nine Gs, and get in a real tight turn where the Phantom had these big old turns because it was made of steel. So it was just it's just night and day. Plus, it was a great airplane to bring aboard a carrier. Very stable. It had auto throttles. You could hook up your auto throttles and. It was a it was a fantastic airplane to fly. And how f what was the fastest speed that you hit personally? Uh, I was in the Phantom. I hit Mach two point two. Wow, which is about sixteen hundred miles an hour. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah, you got to go high. You know, the higher you go, the less uh, the air is less thick. So you go up high, you get supersonic. And then you get about Mach 1.5, and then you take it back up to about 35,000 feet. Then you unload, and you, you can pick up about 2.2 Mach. And actually, I blew an engine out. It uh, it flamed out. So I was able to re relight the engine as I got lower. Wow. But, yeah, I've done so, some. <laughs> yeah, this is like, how do I've you done, even, like. I've done some crazy things in the, in the airplane. <laughs> But I it's mean, all about. I wrote a book, and you know, we'll talk about that later. It's called "The Nine Lives of a Fighter Pilot." I actually should not be here. I um, I should have been I should have been dead eight times in a, in a military fighter. And I, one of them was my first carrier night landing. We put it in there. Yeah, we can get to that. Um, sure. I'll get that on later. But we're talking about the uh, Desert Storm as well. Um, so, what was like your experience with that, and what where, when were you deployed, and where? Yeah, it was uh, 89. I just transitioned to the F-18. So I was brand new in the airplane, and I was at, at uh, I was not with the squadron. I was at a uh, what they call a group level. And uh, all the squadrons were leaving to for Desert Shield, which was the follow-on or the before Desert Storm. They were trying to scare Saddam Hussein into getting out of Kuwait without having to go to war. And it was like... I just, we all wanted to go. I mean, you think, you're like, oh, I don't want to go to war. But, I mean, finally we can use all yeah. our skills. And now this is 90, so I've been doing this since 70, 15 years. 
of training and training and training, and now we could go drop some real bombs and everything. And I, I, I was left behind. I was new in the airplane, so they brought all the guys that had a lot of experience. So I was sitting at home, and I'm like, I'm going to miss this war, and I want to go. And there was a two-seat version of the Hornet called the F-18D that they would use to mark targets. That the guy in the back would look for targets, and they'd roll in with a uh, a rocket with a white phosphorus. So you shoot a rocket at a target, and then the bomber f- Hornets would come in and say, "From the smoke, 100 yards or 100 clicks, 10 clicks north, and you can see the target." So they took over six of these. The war starts now in uh, January of 91, and I'm sitting at home watching it on TV. I'm like, this sucks. (laughs) I mean, all my buddies are over there getting combat time, and we didn't care if we get killed. We we just wanted to go and serve our country. And then uh, I'm working at the headquarters, and there were six more two-seat Hornets at El Toro, and we get a call, bring over the other six to, to the war. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and so the, I was a major, and the colonel comes in. He goes, hey, we got to take six more. We need you as a pilot to fly one over. But when you get there, you're going to go up to the wing staff. You're not going to fly. And I was all bummed. But I said, I don't care. I just want to get to the war. And so the war started January 15th, 91. So it was about January 25th. So the war is about 10 days in, and we fly the six airplanes. Uh, we flew from El Toro to South Carolina, South Carolina to Spain, and then Spain to Bahrain. <coughs> and we had a C-1, uh, a big old tanker that would go with us, six airplanes, three on each side of the tanker, a big old KC-135, and we'd tank. It was like 14 hours from uh, South Carolina to Spain. We tanked about 20 times along the way. We always kind of kept full. And the weather was just brutal. It was raining, and we were just tucked in. It was probably the most difficult flying I ever had. And then we spent the night in Spain. Then we flew to uh, through uh, the Mediterranean and across Saudi Arabia and up into Bahrain. There's a big American base in Bahrain, which is south of uh, Kuwait. And so we get to the, the six airplanes and the colonel, who's the group commander. Uh, we go to his office, and we said, you know, we got the other six. He goes, God, we needed them. And the squadron commander that commanded those six airplanes goes with the group commander with me and this other guy. Him and I were supposed to go to uh, up to the wing staff and do a desk job. And so we go, and the colonel goes to the big colonel saying, I really need these two guys to fly combat. And uh, he goes, well, the word is when they get here, they're supposed to go to the wing staff up up in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. And he goes, but I haven't seen RAS yet, have you? And. I'm standing right nah. there, and have you seen? They called me Snake. I was the Snake, and um, and Cheyenne was the other part. He goes, I haven't seen Snake or Cheyenne. They haven't arrived yet, and I'm like, and I go, we're right here. He goes, well, I haven't seen them. He goes, go fly. So the next day, I'm flying combat, and then I flew uh, 45 combat missions in Desert Storm, and then the war ended uh, end of February. So. And then nobody ever asked for me again. Yeah. Said, They're not here. They're not here. And so, and then that kind of propelled my career because I picked up Lieutenant Colonel. And the guy I was working for made me his executive officer of the Black Knights. When I got back to El Toro, then I became a commanding officer. I uh, had my own squadron, my own F-18 squadron. So I went back to sea in 93 as a fighter squadron commander. We went back to the Persian Gulf. And when Black Hawk down, I don't know if you remember, mm-hmm. in 93, there were two Blackhawks were shot down over in uh, Somalia. And what happened was we were up in the Gulf, and uh, they needed some close air support. So we hightailed our carrier down to Somalia. And that carrier, we tied down every airplane with 19 chains, and it was going over 60 knots, a carrier. That's crazy. That's like going down I-5 on a at 60 knots that yeah. thing was just rumbling it's a big nuclear powered carrier 5,000 <laughs> navy sailor the top speed's classified but the last i saw before they shut down the speed on the television was 60 knots that thing was hauling we were down within a few hours flying close air support one of our helicopter pilots a guy named uh, warrant officer duran was taken hostage we were able to get him back so i flew another 30 combat missions in desert and uh, it was called operation restore hope restore hope yep so I got to see some more combat. And 
in these uh, in Restore Hope specifically, what did you do in regards to the flying? Like, were you doing like the 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 markers, like you said, or kind of what was your? No, job? I was flying. Then I was flying the single seat Hornet, and we fly close air support, meaning uh, the Navy uh, the guys on the ground needed a building bombed. You know, we'd bomb the building. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and they, we had the carrier off the coast. So Adid, who was the uh, head of uh, Somalia, he saw this big carrier sitting out there. Two marine amphibious units came in and it's like, you know, this country is going to be obliterated unless you release this hostage and yeah. like now, yeah. which they did. <laughs> and we were just, yeah, we we're just swooping in at low altitude and we weren't going to take any crap from these guys. That's awesome. And uh, when you're, do you ever meet people that were on the ground that you like, they came to yeah. you guys afterwards and you guys kind of had like, oh, that was me up in right. the, the jet. Yeah, yeah. Saved you we've guys had reunions and we meet in Vegas and and uh we're, we're like i said we're kind of crazy it was a good crazy but to, to do what i did you know now that we're talking about it it's pretty wild that's it's, it's a great story I mean, thousands of hours of flying i got hundreds of carrier landings uh, 75 combat missions um and I, after, you know, I had an air group as a group commander, as a wing commander, and then I had to retire after 30 years. And being a commander, what did that entitle in regards to responsibility? Well, there's segments of the, of a Marine air wing. A squadron is 12 aircraft, which is 12 F-18s and about 20 pilots and about 200 maintenance people that maintain the airplanes and do all the, all the work. And you have a big hangar at El Toro. That was your squadron. The Black Knights was my squadron. VMFA 314, fixed wing Marine fighter attack squadron. 314 we were the black knights the commanding officer commands it all you're the lieutenant colonel your exos the executive officers like a major your pilots are captains and majors and lieutenants um, and then there's an air group which is eight of these squadrons so i was an air group commander when i made fulberg colonel so i oversaw eight squadrons which is an air group and then i was an air wing commander which was six groups so you oversaw six groups all around the united states i was based in new orleans and it's usually a job for a two-star general but they made me a, a, a wing commander for six months because the general had to leave to go to riyadh for uh, then iraqi freedom so as a wing commander which was my last job and uh, I never picked up general. Uh, I wanted to be a general officer, but it didn't happen. But I flew to the last day, and uh, then I retired. So, But it was just an incredible—in the meantime, I met my wife in 1980 at the Officers Club at El Toro, right out of the movie Top Gun. You know, she was there with her girlfriend. <laughs> she goes, you want to dance? I go, come back later. <laughs> it was pretty pretty cool. And, and uh, she, What age was that at? What's that? When did you meet your wife? 1980, and... so I was 27. And got married when? Uh, 1982, so I was 29 when I got married, which for a fighter pilot, that's a good time. You're about 30. You know, you don't want to be married because you're so busy. Yeah, you're younger, yeah. Then we start a family. You have three kids. I have a son now who's a major. He's an F-18 guy now. He actually flew with me together in the backseat of an F-18. That sounds when like When I was something. a colonel, he was my uh, backseater. That sounds like something that obviously only that fighter pilot dynamic will yes. the family will ever be able to And experience. when I was an air group commander, I had some helicopters in my air group, and I got to fly the, all the different helicopters. And we had the troop carrier called the CH-46, CH-46. And uh, it was Christmas time in uh, Arizona. We're taking toys for tots down to the Havasupai Indian Reservation at the bottom of Grand Canyon. And I called my dad up, who's in Phoenix. I said, drive up to Flagstaff, I'm gonna put you in the back. So I put my dad in the back of a helicopter with a Santa Claus and all the toys, and we had some other people, and we took him down. So I flew my dad in the back. That's awesome. Yeah, and then I flew my son later, which was pretty good, and I flew my brother, so. And if you were to summarize, it sounds like you've had an amazing career, and thank you for your service, and if you were to kind of put together your experiences in like a short paragraph, minute or two, um, can you just describe it and like kind of summarize the whole thing of your experience overall? Um, I would say I did not want to be an ordinary person. I want to be extraordinary. I did not want to just be a insurance salesman or, you know, a manager at Costco or something. You Nothing know? wrong with that. No, Love my no. Costco people. <laughs> it's Costco. I just want to be extraordinary. I don't know what drove me to that. And flying jets flying jet fighters is probably for 30 years 
probably not many people have ever done that for that long and uh, surviving and not dying is just very um i don't know it's just I'm not a narcissist, but you just feel pretty proud of yourself. No, it's awesome. It's it's something yeah. to be proud of. Yeah, you know, very pe- proud. People who who you know would would look down on you for talking about the things you've done. It's like, no, you put yourself out there. You experience yeah. things that you know, literally less than one percent of the entire nation, the entire world, even smaller percentage would ever be able to experience. And that's not right. something to you know. People who they say, oh, you know, he just talks about. It. It's like, no, it, it, he's sharing an experience and he's having a great time. And that's what people, especially who are really good at something, especially in sports, like. Yes, humility is always the best attitude, but there's also a time and place to share your experiences and tell people what you're doing because not only are they going to be able to learn from it, potentially they'll be inspired to do something greater with right. their own lives. That's true. And uh, in 1993, I was uh, pilot of the year in the Marine Corps. My squadron was uh, squadron of the year for Marine Forces Pacific. I was top carrier pilot of the year in 1990 and 1993. You know, I, I got a lot of awards, individual awards, squadron awards, and then I, tons of medals from from combat. So I don't talk about it much, so this kind of gives me yeah, it's time good. to talk. But it was just – and I wrote a book called The Nine Lives of a Fighter Pilot. You can get it on uh, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. It's a great, great book. There you go. And, and everything goes to charity that when I sell it. It goes to a uh, Patriots and Paws, which is a uh, charity that helps veterans. And uh, so let's just dive into the book then. That's a great transition point. So writing a book takes a lot of work. It's a lot of thought process, mental energy. What went into the book and why would you put it? Like what, what was your Well, background? I started publishing when I retired. I, I, I did work for JetBlue. And we'll go into that later as a commercial employee. But uh, my father never talked too much about his career. And my grandfather was World War One guy, and obviously not an aviator, but I never knew much about him. And I want to jot down some notes for my kids and grandkids once I'm gone. And, it, and I start writing and writing. And I'm not a good writer. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mathematician type of guy. I, mean, I can't put a sentence together, but uh, I start writing and writing and uh, I, and I started a publishing company. So I self-published my book and uh, we sold about 10, 20,000 copies. So it's just, and I did it like in six months. And then I went on, I had all the, I wrote it all myself and I went on uh, Craigslist and I said, does anyone help me? I, who's an editor who can help me put all this into a book. And I met this lady in Lake Forest. I'm from Mission Viejo and I met with her and she was able to put it into uh, chapters and, and and take out some bad English and add good English. So she helped me, and then we we got a, a lady that public that um, put it into a book form mm-hmm. and produced it basically. Yeah, produced it. Yeah, that's awesome. It's and you just uh, accounted all of your tales and it started times when I was a little that. kid. You know. And that's started, awesome because that's first like, thing I remember, I was four years old, and uh, there's four of us boys in one room. We had two bunk beds, and my brother would always, older brothers would always scare me that there's monsters and stuff under the bed. So I remember one one night I go down to my parents' bed and I wake up my mom. I'm scared, and she goes, "Go lay next to your father," and I go on his side. I just remember just the the peace being next to my dad and then about an hour later he'd carry me back to bed and that's how the book starts and then it goes into my life what what got me what i just talked got me to the point point where i want to be a pilot and then where i am today running for u.s congress and it's, it's a journey and the fact that you're able to, to sit down and document everything will not only be a blessing to other people's lives but also your family they'll be able to look back yes. and say, you know this is what yeah. grandpa did someday right right and then my father lived in 97 and i was prying his brain the last three years of his life because I'm writing a book called Havoc Going Down. My father flew the A-20 Havoc. H-A-V-A-C was the name of the airplane and he got shot up really bad and uh, one that just took flying across. I was picking his brain so I'm working on another book right now. Family history is very yeah. important to document. So um, that let's conclude your military career with that. Let's transition into how you went from military to uh, commercial aviation and what that transition was like. Well, it's really hard. You, you're on top of the world as a colonel. You, you, I commanded my last command over 10,000 Marines and sailors, billions of dollars worth of machinery. I had squadrons at war, and then you retire, and it's all over. And, and it, t- it takes quite an adjustment. And my buddy was flying for JetBlue. He goes, Once, I, and I didn't know what to do after, but I, I know I enjoyed flying. 
And he goes, you want to work for JetBlue? I said, oh, you know, I would be a first officer. I wouldn't be a captain. I'm now 51 years old. <laughs> and he goes, no, just, you know, you're an easygoing guy. You get along with the captains. You know, I'd be 51 and they're 35, you know. And But you had to really be humble and just suck it all up, you know. You Especially can't say, well, I was a fighter pilot. Yeah, you're, you're yeah, going to be right. the guy that's like, you know, yeah, complete the, BA. I'm, and these I'm guys are just the, like. I'm getting the coffee yeah, and calling push, the flight attendants. Push to, this button. Do right. That, do this. Yeah. So uh, I said, okay, I'll try it. And I interviewed with JetBlue, got the job, and went to Miami for training. It was eight weeks of training into Airbus. I flew the Airbus 320, 156-passenger bus. And uh, then I got based in New York. At JFK, so I had to get a, what they call a crash pad. Uh, there's about 20 people chip in to rent a house, and there's beds all over. And at any one time, there's four or five guys in and out. But uh, within eight months, I got based at Long Beach. So uh, I got I flew out of Long Beach, the Airbus. And I did that for four years. I, I enjoyed it. The money was not all that well good, but I really had some good times with friends. And then my buddy owned a auto part distribution firm in Anaheim. He goes, I need, I'm always in China or Europe buying parts. I need you to run the operation in Anaheim. I said, I don't know anything about auto parts. And he goes, well, you're a Marine Colonel. He goes, you can do it. He gave me a pretty good salary. And I said, said goodbye to JetBlue. I didn't like it. It was so boring. You know, I'd fly from Long Beach to New York or Long Beach to Boston. You spend the night in Boston, and then you do up and down the East Coast, down to, to uh, Fort Lauderdale and back up to Buffalo, and then you fly back for a four-day trip. Then you get four days off, and then it takes you like a day or two just to get back in the right time zone again, and then you have one day to just kind of relax, and then the fourth day you're getting ready for your next trip. So it was, it was, it was not something I enjoyed at all. So it was pretty easy to leave JetBlue, and, and, and I'd love running this business. There's only about 40 people in the company but uh we i had a great it's one of the best times i like because i ran the whole show he was always gone and then after a few years a company came and bought us out and i, I didn't want to buy out but I, the, the guy gave me some profit i was able to run for u.s congress and then in 2014 i lost i came in third place i ran for my city council i've been mayor of mission viejo now i'm running for congress again but we'll get into that Hundred percent. But the Airbus are good airplanes, easy to fly. It's just you just hit buttons, and you're not really a pilot. You're a you're a uh, pilot driver, a uh, plane driver. You're not even that. You're just a computer operator. You know, you have to have you have to have the sense of flying because there's some in- incidents. But you're just pushing buttons, and you know, you take off, you pull back, and the Airbus has a little stick. And you get about a hundred feet, you hit autopilot. And you don't touch anything till about a hundred feet before you land. Then you untake that, and then you land it. Who can't do that? Yeah, but all that training that goes into it's right. the hardest part for most people. You get to altitude. It takes like forty minutes to get to altitude. Then you break out the the magazines and <laughs> call it a day. You're not supposed to say that. And then, yeah, yeah, you're supposed to be watching your instruments. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> but uh, you know these red eyes, you know they they're tough. You know, try to stay awake. And <laughs> yep, and uh, in some regards to um, scheduling and kind of how. Because you, you had a family at this time, too. Were your kids growing up, or was that the point where you kind of could just step away and go, obviously, fly all over the Well, well JetBlue, the kids were all grown up. Okay. Um, we started our family right away. I have twin daughters. They live in Irvine. They're both married and have two kids, and they're both school teachers at Irvine Unified School District, grammar school teachers. My son lives in San Juan Capistrano, just retired after 20 years in the Marine Corps, believe it or not. Wow. So he's uh, working now for a, uh, a company here in, in Orange County. But my wife was the strong one. She, you know, I was gone all the time. She raised a family. You know, she and she was a school teacher herself, and she's a college professor at UCI and Cal State Fullerton. But uh, I'd be gone seven, eight, nine months at a time. I just and she ran the family. That's amazing. You know, the 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 housewife of the the people who it's are. Tough. Uh, it's tough. Yeah, you shouldn't be married as a military officer. You should not. I mean, but thank God I had a strong wife who ran. Who the kids all turned out very successful. But most of the guys are divorced. Most pilots are divorced. Yeah, because when you don't spend time with somebody, you right. literally can't build the right. relationship. You can't. But uh, it was the old days where you write letters back and forth. And you know, I'm a carrier. I'm on the midway. And it takes like 
two weeks for my letter to get home and it say she's mad at me and <laughs> it takes like six weeks for the for the argument to be reconciled it's the cool down period what are you back talking about <laughs> now you now you got uh, emails and everything else and instant messaging you got, uh, uh what is it where you could see each other skype skype and stuff like that but we didn't have any of that we you know a guy would bring the mail true love right there true love i tell <laughs> you she was tough uh, she uh she she kept the family together. And that's awesome. And um, and so in regards to you transitioned out of JetBlue, you got bought out or whatever. So now your political career, this is something that you've kind of always thought about. Yes, up, ever since high school when I said I was class president. And then, oh, one thing when I was um, in, in 80, 96 to 99, uh, I, I got my master in, in 80, in 95, I got my master. They sent me to get a master's degree at National Defense University in Washington, D.C., I got a master's degree in military strategy. What they're doing, they're, they're getting you ready for senior officer, for colonel and general. And it's a pay, they call it a payback tour. Uh, you have to do three years in Washington, uh, ground job before you go back flying. And they sent me to the Pentagon and I was getting ready to start my job. And the guy that assigns me to the job, I flew with in Desert Storm. He's in my back seat. And <laughs> one of my nine lies was we surfaced the air missile, almost shot us down. And he saw it coming. I didn't. And, and I was a, he, he screamed over the radio to pull. And I pulled really hard. And the missile went over my head and just missed us. Then we turned around. Another missile came and just missed us. And so we have this bond because yeah. we almost died. And I and he was the officer placement. I said, find me something better than the Pentagon. You know, I'm in D.C. There's got to be something better. He goes, well, there's this job opening up at the White House if you want to go interview for it. And I go, well, what is it? Well, you, I'd be the chief of staff of the White House military office. We oversaw all the military support of the president and vice president and cabinet members. We, Air Force One came under us. A helicopter squadron came under us. Camp David, all his military, all his medical team came under us. So I went over and interviewed at the White House, and I got the job. So I worked three years at the White House in the East Wing. And what was that like? It was freaking incredible. <laughs> you, you know, know like I'm at the highest level of government. President Clinton was the president in his second term. You know, he was a Democrat. I'm more, but it, it was a nonpartisan. <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay. It's a nonpartisan job. You know, we just yeah. support whoever the president would be. It, it could have been Reagan or whoever. And but I would fly on all the trips with the president on Air Force One. I would uh, go overseas with the president. I would be uh, his right hand man when it came to military logistics to get him places. And we worked with the Secret Service and we worked with the local police wherever we went. So it was a pretty heady job too. So then I start working with Congress because congressional uh, bills would come through our office on military affairs for the president to sign. And I said, someday I'd like to come back to Washington and work as a congressman. So that was 96 to 99. And then, uh, so in 2014, after I left JetBlue, we sold our company. I had some time to run for Congress, so I did. And I came in third. You had to be in the top two in the primary, which is today. I got to be in the top two today to move to the November general election. And I came in third, very, very tight. I only lost by a couple thousand votes. And that didn't work out, so I ran for my local government, city council, Mission Viejo, where I live, and I was the mayor, mayor pro tem a couple of years, and now I'm running again for U.S. Congress. So yeah, best of luck. And yeah, today, uh, what time are you going to play this? Because by 8:05 tonight, I'll know if I'm in the top two. There's seven of us running: six Republicans, one Democrat. The Democrat would probably be number one, and then us six, one of us six Republicans would be number two. If I'm number two, then uh, I moved to the general election for November. That'll be awesome. It's it's exciting. It's uh, just another niche in my my life of uh, excitement. Be, yeah, and I'm sure your family supports you. Oh yeah, the kids are growing up and grandkids. Everyone's helping me. Uh, so today's a big day. Election That's awesome. Day. Super excited for super, you. Super Tuesday. Yeah, thank you. All right, and so I'm kind of wanting to go into the. Um, the overall principles of your life and the things that kind of made you into into what you are now. Um, so what would you say are the most kind of valued principles to you? Things that you kind of just hold fast to in times of struggle when you've been feeling down? or I learned it early in Boy Scouts is to help other people. And uh, as a Boy Scout, Eagle Scout, I learned at a young age that, that life isn't just all about you. It's about helping other people. And as a politician, I've learned to 
used that uh, thought to help other people. When I was mayor, I helped other people in Mission Viejo. I've been very generous to, to the disenfranchised, those people that need help. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian, so I, uh, you know, I came close to seeing God many times. <laughs> so I, I, I've lived lived a good life, and I try to share my values with other people. And what would you say defines a leader? Describe it. A leader is someone who can, you have to know the people you lead. And you have to know, not only get them to follow you, but follow you under any circumstance. And I got to be a good leader because people respect it, but you have to be respected by those you lead. And you got to be firm. And, and it took a while to be a good leader. Uh, I used to be a little lax because I was too kind. And I remember a couple of people, the people take advantage of that. So a leader has to know when to be firm, uh, especially in the military where as a leader, it's life and death. It's not like you run in a company, you may go bankrupt, but uh, it's life or death, the decisions you make. So you have to gain the respect of, of your subordinates. They have to respect you and then you have to respect them back. But then you got to get them to do what you need them to do. And that's not always that easy, you know. You got to know their personalities. You have to know their life. You got to know their your per, their personal lives. You know what's bugging them, what's not bugging them, and uh, and there's a chain of command in the military. You don't want to break that chain. You don't want to go from say this guy under you go under him and and, and subvert him. So you got to respect the chain of command. And in this latest impeachment of President Trump, there was a, a young lieutenant colonel. Uh, Veznev, yeah, who broke the chain of command and went right to the House committee. He should have went right to the guy above him and say, hey, this is what I observe. I listened to this phone call. He's talking to the Ukrainian president. This Something's not right. And left it there. Let the next guy handle it. But yeah. he went around that guy, went around that guy, then went to it. Went and, so I, I have no respect for what he did. That's, thought, it sounds like the foundational principles or the hierarchy kind of... of Respect the chain of command, respect your Marines, respect those below you, and uh, and lead. And I remember a sergeant major told me I had a problem. I go, what do I do? He goes, in command, command. And I always remember that. In command, command. You're the commander. You command and, and just do it. And what made you realize and, and come to that conclusion in regards to what a leader is in your life? How did you test that out in reality? Um, Where did you see those principles come true? Uh, first, a desert storm, flying combat. You know, I would lead other aircrafts in, so they had to trust 100% what I was telling them, or they would have got killed. Uh, I led as a, I became a landing signal officer, the guy that trained carrier pilots. I was one of the best landing signal officers in the Marine Corps. And so I, I got a good feel. People trusted me as a pilot. They trusted me as an instructor. They tr trusted me as a top gun. And then... Uh, I just I just became a great leader. And when I was mayor of Mission Viejo last year, you know, we, we ran a budget uh, surplus. We just we just had a, an amazing year. So I just know I'm a good leader. That's awesome. I love leading people because they love to uh, be under my, my 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 responsibility. Was there someone in your life that influenced the way you think as well or someone who had a really, a really profound impact on you or you kind of just experimented and there is i went to a catholic school high school and there was a priest father rodenspiel and i struggled a little bit in math and i didn't make the national honor society my junior year and he says well you didn't deserve it i go what are you talking about why i should have been it and he goes you didn't earn it and he gave me all these extra books and he worked with me and he helped me and and he kind of knew i wanted to be a pilot and he goes, you got to know math a lot better than you know now. So I took trig class. I took uh, geometry. I took all that stuff. And, and he died early with cancer, and I got to be one of his pallbearers. So I, that was probably the guy, Father uh, Rodenspiel. And then my high school football coach, Bill Moss, he was, he was a great leader. That sounds amazing. You know, everybody who I've met so far who's done something big in aviation has always had usually someone that they can 
relate their values to even if like for example i had an air traffic controller on here he didn't really have someone that mentored him growing up but it was the things he took from different areas of life and the only real way to test if what you're saying is true not only to yourself is to actually go out and implement those values and principles in the world and see if they fail or see if they success and kind of just keep building on that momentum that you build right and so um i just that's all i was asking you what your who was a person that could have mentored you and it sounds like uh it wasn't necessarily the the combat side and in the all the stuff you've done it's the little things in regards to your learning and um and so that leads me to our next question which would be um where did you find that you struggled the most in your life in regards to yourself and what made you what obstacles did you have to overcome personally well, you have a lot of self-doubt, you know, am I up for this next flight? Am, did I learn that maneuver well enough for the instructor to pass me on it? But uh, there's a lot of self-doubt. You know, every time I'd go flying, you know, you'd have you get trained and you would train on a, on a specific maneuver and then you get evaluated on it. So, you know, sometimes you screw up and have to do it again and again till you learn it right. But uh I, I think learning to fly military airplanes is probably one of the most difficult things I've ever, ever done. And that probably gave you a lot of confidence, though, for sure. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know, because you, know, you always, you always, there's always a little doubt, you know, about your, about your ability. But um, I was, when I strapped into a jet and took off of an aircraft carrier, I always very comfortable coming back my fear was something would happen to the airplane which had a couple times i had a, a fire airborne in in the cockpit and i had to land the airplane with no electrical system uh, hydraulic system was blown uh and that's what separates the men from the boys in aviation how do you handle an emergency and and i i handle emergencies really really well and it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when for when, most people, right? Yeah. And so, so all the things that you've done as well, everybody who I've met that's been successful, either whether they know how to articulate it or not, they have some sort of like internal fire in their chest and they, they get a burn. They get like an itch when they're doing something and they're, they're in the right place at the right time doing what they love. Do you, did you ever have that kind of internal fire inside of you when you might have been feeling down or you, you overcame something? You kind of just felt like that, like the yes moment, I'm doing the right thing. And how would you kind of describe that if you did? Yeah, I would say when I was a F-18 squadron commander, I was on the Abraham Lincoln and, I, and my squadron, there were seven squadrons on the carrier. There's about 75 airplanes on every aircraft carrier. We had 12 and we were competing to be the best squadron. And every time you land, you get graded on your landing, uh, 4.0 or 3.0. And there's the guy, you know, if you're high or low. And I was, out of 113 pilots, I was ranked number one. And I, I was so freaking good. And I knew how good I was. But I wanted my squadron to be the best. And I'm pumping up all my pilots. We can do this. We can do this. You know, just do what I do. And uh, we became the, the best squadron on the, on the cruise. So, uh that was the feel of just probably the most proudest time in my life when I became the top, they call it top hook. I was a top hook as a, as a Marine, not a Navy pilot, a Marine pilot. It, the Navy did not like that because yeah. their pilots are the best. And the Admiral came to me, he goes, I'm embarrassed that a Marine beat every, all my Navy pilots. But it was a really that's, good, that's yeah, a a good, good feeling. feeling. Yeah. yeah. So that's when I knew I was the best of the best. And you also mentioned that you wanted to bring all the other, other people up around you as well and get them better. Yeah, I How worked hard and I would train them and I would sit in a ready room with them. Like, that's what you got to do. And one pilot's having trouble. I said, you know, you need to sit out a couple of days. You got a family problem at home, you know, unclutter your brain and then, you know, we'll get you back in the airplane. But we had a one, an event where a Tomcat's coming in at night. It's the first landing, and he crashes on the carrier. He landed short, and, and the whole flight deck's on fire. And there's 14 airplanes that had to land, and we're in the middle of nowhere. We're in the Indian Ocean. Where there's nowhere else we could go. And I had three of my pilots out flying. I wasn't out. I was on the flight deck. 
It, and everyone learns how to handle emergencies. They clean the flight deck, and within like a half hour, they had everything set, new wires put across. And I'm talking to my pilots. They're all out of gas. They're yeah. all running out of gas. I said, here's a story. I go, if this flight deck's not ready, you're just going to eject one by one, and the helicopter will come pick you up out of the water. Yeah. And said, oh, my God, what are you talking about? They're all like, yes, sir, no problem. Yeah. You know, you, you compartmentalize, and uh, finally they're the first three to land. One guy landed and ran out of gas as he's taxiing out. Another guy landed and ran out of gas, and we all three of them landed. And they're all young pilots, but uh, I mean, Balls. there's, there's <laughs> yeah, the foam on the one from the fire, you know, they're just throwing stuff off the deck, and uh, they all landed. And I'm so proud of them. And I'm talking to them on the radio from the carrier saying, Yeah, you're, you're all good. So, but, sir, what do we do? Said, oh, yeah. Did a Run great out job. of gas, pull your ejection handle, and we'll come pick you up in a helicopter. Okay, all right, they're all cool. And I think that's something that's very important, too. You mentioned that um, because you were the best at what you were doing, you were able to help other people. But it took time. It took sacrifice. It took dedication to get to that point in your life where you're able to help. And I've always firmly believed that um, people who take the time to invest in themselves, once they spend the time doing it and by rising to the top, then they can be a shining example to other people. But like right now you have a bunch of people who don't really invest in themselves, but they talk the talk. And so they don't have the credibility when it comes to it. And so that's why I think it's so important to have like someone like you on the show to tell people that, hey, you know, um, you spent the time getting yourself to where you were. And it's only because you sacrificed, you had the lonely days, you spent the long night studying that you're now able to to come on a podcast, talk about the things you've done, run for Congress, have the reputation behind you to make you into who you are. Right. Most people, they'll look at you and they will, they'll, or they'll, they'll see everything you did, but they don't actually, and they'll never be able to understand what it actually took to get no, to the point won't. that you are, because it's just, it's one of those things that, you know, you can't walk in someone else's shoes. You can empathize, but at the end of the day, unless you actually go do it and live your life for yourself, you're never going to be able to actually, you know, um, experience the same type of thing. Right. And when I was flying off carriers, I would train on my own in simulators every night and practice and practice and practice. And, pra- and I couldn't get my guys to practice as much as I did. I said, if you want to be the best of the best, you got to practice. And a lot of them had families, and they, they didn't take four or five hours that night to sit in a simulator and train. How valuable is your time, would you say, when regards to when you're preparing for something, when you're focused, how how much do you value your time like when you give it to people i don't understand like um because time right all this stuff you've done it takes time right and time is the currency that we'll never be able to get back and so when you're allocating your days yeah how do you go about (laughs) distributing it you know right yeah there's been times where i said those two hours i'll never get back (laughs) (laughs) it bothers me when i try to help people and they take advantage of me you know, where I work with them and work with them, and, and then they don't perform. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> I've taken in strays to my house. My wife goes crazy, yeah. and they just take advantage of me. So it's it's bothersome. Uh, I don't think that there's that uh, killer instinct in people like I, I would like in me. If you want to be successful, you you got to work hard. You can make a lot of money off the stock market or something, but if you want to <laughs> be successful in a skill, you know, a master a mason or, or a, a a mechanic, you know, you, you got to train to be good at it. Even and instruments. Yeah, anything. Get really good at creative, yes. you know, you can go right. to a concert and the guy just jams right. on the piano and you're just like, that's impressive, but you don't yeah. see the hours every single day he spends there just plucking each string, you know. You're like Jim Morrison, you heard of him? That sounds really familiar. He was with The Doors. He was the lead, lead uh, guitarist for the the band The Doors, and he was just amazing. I met him when I was in high school. He, he uh he, they did a concert in Phoenix in 67. I was like 15. And uh, the doors uh, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. And he was over at my buddy's house. And they're jamming with uh, Grace Slick, who was with the uh, Jefferson Airplane, I think. Is that who she's with? Yeah. Grace Slick and Alice Cooper was there. And I'm like this kid. I didn't know who these, these rockers were. Until later <laughs> in life, I'm like, oh, my God, these are all icons, you know. And but they, I remember even what they did. They had to train and practice, you know, at their skill, you know. And uh, I'm really like uh, Carrie Underwood, who's just like a nobody. She yep. goes on American Idol and she just thing. works so hard, and she's just like a phenomenal singer. So I really respect people that uh, use their talent and then 
go beyond their talent and to get better and better at it. You know, say a, a good Kobe Bryant, you know, yeah, one of the best basketball players, had amazing talent in high school, and then he made it better and better and became a, a star. He became obsessed with the game. Willie Mays was my big uh, icon growing up. He was center fielder for the San Francisco Giants and was just, just was an amazing baseball player. So there's people that I really respect who who have talent and and I don't respect those that have talent and just let it squander. You know, like one of my best friends was like just amazing athlete and he just he didn't do crap and now he's on unemployment or something else. So uh, you know, so but I I help people but uh People have taken advantage of that. And at the end of the day, it's like, you know, you never I stop try. loving because right. that it's, it's it's the little things that count. You know, it's the typical scenario. You know, if I can save one people out of a thousand, you know, it's like it's that one person right. I saved that made the difference, even though you just keep giving and giving. But yeah. also because you took the sacrifice to build yourself up that you can keep giving and giving. Yeah. So, I you know, I've come close to dying so many times. I, I blacked out in a phantom. I pulled too many Gs and. I snapped my neck, I remember, and I went unconscious, and I was unconscious but subconscious, and I'm like, hmm, I just died. I just broke my neck, and all I could think of, my mom's going to be so upset at the funeral. <laughs> I'm thinking this, you know. She's going to be so upset at the funeral, and I was like 26 then, and and then I'm like, the, I, I had a two-seater, so the guy in the back's like screaming because the airplane's starting to head down, and, yeah. And I keep hearing uh, forward stick, forward stick, forward stick, forward stick. And I had pressure on the stick from pulling G's, and I, and I didn't unload subconsciously. And I could, why is he yelling at me, forward stick? So I forward the stick, which took the pressure off the airplane, mm -hmm. and the blood comes back to my head, and all the sounds came back. And I go, wait a minute, I'm alive. And we're, like, heading straight to the ground, and I rolled at wings level and, and pulled out. And he was going to punch us both out if I didn't come to – but uh, I remember I, I, I thought I died, and it was pretty pretty surreal, and I wasn't scared or anything. Just at peace. I was just remember mom's going to be upset. A life well lived, and you, at the end of the day, you thought about people so, care. So what I want to say is today, I'm 66, I sh I've retired, I have a nice pension from the military, I saved my money, and I should just be enjoying life. And I, and I put myself on the edge again to run for Congress. You know, I put myself out there. People start abusing you and talking bad about you, and making up lies and and uh, but it's all to serve serve the people that i would represent perseverance will definitely be your friend yeah and i and i asked my wife that the other night i go why do i do this why, why? and we got to go to another barbecue and i got to get, get up for a speech and then this morning i had a breakfast i go why do I? but that's just in, it's just in, ingrained in my 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 being you know, and it's what makes you different, and you'll be recommend you'll be rewarded for that. Right. Sure. Well, we'll see what happens tonight yeah. at eight. God, I hope I win. Hundred percent. I wish I'm a winner, life. and I love. It's a challenge. I love challenges, and and I put myself on these challenges. And obviously, I want to be a good congressman and serve, but it's a challenge. The winning, you know, you want to be a winner. <laughs> yeah. And uh, any last comments or statements that you want to make? Tell anybody last thoughts, message, statement. Just lead a good life, treat people good, and, and, and that's all you can do. Don't, a lot of people will badmouth me to bring me down to their level, they, you know, because they, you know, when they see someone who's successful, they try to bring them down, you know, like the president. He's a very successful president. They try to constantly bring them down. And those are the people, you know, you don't want to get too close to. But you, got, you know that there's a certain amount of friends you have that you can trust family you can trust and you have an inner circle but uh, don't be afraid to go beyond them and try to help people and, and make their lives better so um, that's what I want to do as a congressman I call this my last mission in life but I'm looking to run for the presidency in 2024 2024 yeah. mark it on the calendar so uh, two terms as a congressman that i'm gonna run for u.s president heck yeah big goals big goals all righty so uh that's uh jpl aviation where leadership and aviation take off thanks greg that's it yeah. all right thanks guys